I, I think so often in this world of complexity, we're seeking control and we see leaders seeking control and sometimes we want control of our own lives or the businesses uh, where we work. But um, I, I argue in my book that Emergent Order suggests that there are many, many things that are not within our control and that's okay. In fact, it's great often. And that we just need to find the way to um, seek influence rather than control. Uh, and that's the that's a much more productive path to a fulfilling life and one that helps um, make society better. That is Neil Chilson. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's Top Priority is a little bit different. We're not talking about any priority initiatives exactly, but we are talking with someone who's been on the podcast before. Neil Chilson is the Senior Research Fellow for Technology and Innovation at Stand Together, and on September 23rd, he published his new book, Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. This podcast, we sit down with Neil and talk with him about his book, the writing process, and what it means to apply emergent order to leadership and why he thinks it's better when you get out of control. Anyone who knows me knows that when it comes to my passion, books are at the top. Um, well, probably not the top, maybe like a number three. Because there's some kids in there, too, and a wife. Uh, so family, books, yeah, they're up there. So when someone said, Neil's got a book coming out, would you like to talk to him? I said, absolutely, I would. Let's do this. So, Neil, thanks for being here again. Thanks so much for having me back. It is. It has been a while. So tell me tell me what we're talking about, the book that's exciting. I, I, I think about writing a book. And then that's as far as it gets. So to actually go out and do it, that is amazing. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. Um, uh, it was its own uh, crazy emergent order process, which is pretty appropriate since the book, uh, which is called Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World, uh, is all about uh, the very complex systems around us and how uh, as leaders in our families, uh, in our communities, and even in politics, we can engage productively with those complex systems that nobody controls, but we all participate in. Um, so writing a book was very much an emergent process. It's, uh, it took me basically all of COVID. Uh, <laughs> I, started, I started the book just before um, you know, I think in March of 2019, is that right? Is that how long we've been in COVID? Or is it yeah, that's when I, I got off the road was, yeah, yeah. was March. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I started about then and um, uh, it's just it just came out like last Thursday. So it's been quite a journey. And I think it's just getting started, hopefully. So tell me, um, you, you use the phrase emergent and there's, I guess there's, some, is there a debate in the economic world over whether spontaneous order or emergent order is preferred i've, I've listened to econ talk and they have these conversations yeah. but in, in your mind 
Is emergent order and spontaneous order the same thing? And why did you choose to go with emergent? Yeah, so spontaneous order is the the phrase that Hayek uses to talk about primarily when he's talking about he's talking about market processes, uh, but he means something very similar to what I mean by emergent order. I chose emergent order because it is the more commonly used phrase outside of economics. So, um, you know, emergent order is a phenomenon that occurs in biology. It occurs in physics. It uh, it occurs in all sorts of social settings. And so I wanted to capture the, the bigger picture and the scientists who study that, that, that bigger picture, all the commonalities of all these very different systems, uh, you know, cosmetically very different systems, uh, they speak of emergent order uh, instead of spontaneous order. Um, I have all the respect in the world uh, for Hayek. And actually, I talk a, a good chunk about the history of emergent order and spontaneous order throughout the uh, history of economics in the book. But I think emergent order actually captures it a, the sense a little bit better. Spontaneous to me strikes sounds sort of accidental, and it also has this sense of uh, a temporal sense that it's like very fast. Often we think of things that are spontaneous as happening very quickly. Emergent order can actually be quite slow, um, and also I think it better captures the idea that there's a lot of little pieces that are working together with nobody in control. Uh, but still with a, a productive result. And so I, that's part of the reason why I picked it. Two reasons. One thing that I think about, too, when you compare spontaneous order and emergent order, spontaneous also has like a sense of surprise, too. Like like you said, some something suddenly happens and then the person's like, oh, taken aback by it. I never expected that. That's so sudden. With emergent, though, it's more like you're watching something evolve over time and you're like, OK, I think I see where this is going. I, I did. That's a little bit surprising, but not so much. Let's move forward from here. And so there is kind of a, a difference in mental models there also. Would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I would say, you know, emergent order can be quite surprising, I think. Uh, but um, but I agree it's the surprise can be drawn out over a much longer period of time. Uh, and I think I was drawn to emergent order. Uh, I, I think actually all as humans, we're often drawn to emergent order because because nature is full of it and and I think seeing something that came about and strikes us as aesthetically very pleasing uh, everything from you know how rivers form uh, uh, a delta at the end of you know when they enter the ocean um, or the shapes of trees and um, uh, you know the the contours of clouds in the sky all of these are, are uh, we see order in them, and uh, and they are natural phenomena that are occurring from lots of small entities executing simple rules, essentially, and then creating something complex. Um, and I think we, I, I, at least I, find that very beautiful uh, when I see, uh, in particular, the the cover of the book um, has a is sort of inspired by. Um, starling murmurations. Starlings are these, you know, birds that flock a lot. And murmurations are these patterns that you might have seen. There's beautiful videos of them online. They're very hard to capture in f photographs, unfortunately. But in videos, you can sort of see the swirling, quick direction changes that the birds go through. And that is an emergent process. Nobody is leading the flock. Um, there isn't like a point person. There's not even a... Um, 
there's just very simple rules about how far they stay away from uh, the other person next to them. And over time, that creates these beautiful patterns. Uh, schools of fish have some a very similar, beautiful and sort of entrancing um, order, even though nobody's in control of them. And so... <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I forgot where I was going with that, but I'm just I'm I was so I'm so absorbed uh, with that stuff when I was a kid, um, uh, that uh, you know I had no idea that like much later in my career would actually you know have some implications for when I talk about policy or when when we think about how uh, how do we as individuals interact with institutions, uh, the institutions around us that spontaneous order that that emergent order would have. Uh, applications there. So <clears throat> it's been a long journey for me on, on this uh, emerging order trip. So you said you started writing it at the beginning of COVID. How how big of an influence did COVID have on the book, specifically when you're watching policies be uh, suggested and then implemented? How big of an impact did, did that have on what you wrote? There's a couple of ways that there was a big impact. I mean, obviously, I spent a lot of time um, working from home, as as I think we all did, so it <clears throat> so I think uh, in that way, just watching all of my patterns, my habits, my past habits get totally disrupted, um, was a good reminder that uh, I wasn't in control, <clears throat> and that um, that I needed to be flexible and build new habits in this new environment. And in some ways, I think uh, I think many people have found this. I, I could take that opportunity to rethink the th- some of the things I was doing, and become more productive, or maybe change what I was focusing on. And so, um, so COVID definitely had that impact on me uh, as a, a big disruptive force uh, that broke up some of my old habits and forced me to look at how I might form new habits and and stay productive. On the substance of the book, I actually had a, uh, a case study of COVID as one part of one of the chapters. Um, but as any author will tell you, uh, ed- editors have a, a lot of sway. And in fact, uh, my editor convinced me that uh, the, the examples that I had that were uh, aimed at tech policy were probably more um, convincing to my audience. And to be honest, they were areas that I knew uh, a lot more about. Um, so I, I thought a lot about the COVID question, though. I mean, viruses are a emergent process, right? And the way that they convey through society is as well, as well as we often saw a lot. Of, we saw a lot of examples of emergent order, and uh, I get into this in the book. Not all examples of emergent order are are good. Um, in economics, we might call some things that are emergent where the, it's a phenomenon that comes about from individuals acting, um, but it, it makes things worse off. We call that an externality often, um, something that's not quite calculated into your own individual actions, but it, uh, when added together can make everyone worse off. Um, there are lots of examples of externalities in the COVID space, both um, from ideas about how as an individual I might act uh, and what that impact might have on other people, um, all the way up to policies that tried to correct for externalities, uh, but themselves created all of these, uh, um, you know, bad effects on people that were not within the sort of that uh, side effects that were not intended by the people who were creating these solutions to to solve the 
problem, whether it be uh, you know shutting down businesses or uh, masking mandates, lots of other things that, again, well-intentioned, uh, but have side effects that maybe weren't considered when they were when they were passed. So there's lots of examples of emergent order, uh, good and bad, in the COVID phenomenon. And um, uh, and it certainly is a sort of underlay to the book, even though I, I don't talk much about COVID directly in the book. Let's assume for a second that I'm a new supervisor. Just I've just been promoted. And for the first time ever, I'm going to have direct reports. How am I going to use emergent order to make what I'm doing as as successful as possible and what they're doing as successful as possible? Because maybe the example that I've had before are very controlling bosses who are top down. They, they, they want to have their hands in everything. How should I, as a new supervisor, use emergent order to be successful? I love that question. Um, I, I think the key thing to realize as somebody who's moved into a new position of authority or within a, within a hierarchy is how much we think that leadership is about control and how wrong we are when we think that. Leadership is even at the highest levels and even in some of the most what you might consider command and control structures like the military for example uh, is a uh, there's a large chunk of it that's about persuasion uh, and influence rather than command commanding others and I, I use an example I talk about um, uh, General Stanley McChrystal's experiences in Afghanistan uh, in Iraq and um, and his it, that he that he draws on from his book uh, Team of Teams, and what he discovered, uh, and what I think is true even outside of the military, even more so, was that if he was the person having to make the decision all of the time, it was extremely inefficient, and often it resulted in no better results. And so, um, I think. The, the takeaway for me from that is, is new leaders should look for how do they set how do they set a good example of what they need from the team, but also how do they help build the habits, the overall habits of their organization, um, the things that will influence people to to go in an aligned direction without having to provide all of the without all of the detail information having to move up from the person who has it to the leader and then move back down. And so um, how do we create that level of uh, efficiency where I can, I'm vision aligned with my employees and they're vision aligned with uh, the vision of the organization and that we can build the trust that's necessary to um, allow efficient delegation, uh, allow problem solving to happen at the level where the information is the most fresh, which is often not at the leadership level, but often, you know, the, the on the ground um, employee who's facing a particular problem that they have to solve. There's a lot of moving factors in that. There's a lot of there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff and a lot of foundation that needs to be laid, though, before you can have that that kind of situation. And I, I go back. I was just at a conference where Patrick Lencioni was talking and he was talking about the five dysfunctions of a team. And it sounds like what you're saying 
Hmm. goes back to what what he talks about is is there is almost a need for conflict and that conflict can be healthy. And it reminds me also of this old saying that if you're in a meeting and, and everyone agrees and somebody's not thinking. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And if you have this emergent order, you need to have a situation. You, you need to have a situation where, where, as a supervisor, you can say this may be the direction to go, and your team have the trust and and confidence that if they disagree with that, that there will not be harsh top-down consequences. That that there's there's a, a culture where you can have that conflict because it's seen as good. And that solutions come from that emergent nature of the team. Sure, yeah, you know, and in, in MBM they talk about a, having a challenge culture, and I think one thing that's clear from um, my studying of emergent order in nature as well as in uh, you know in society is that it requires difference, right? So you can't have something emerge if everything's the same already. And so I, I think your point about a meeting where it's it's worse than, than someone's not thinking. Um, if everybody's thinking the same, you're probably not creating anything new. You're probably not solving a problem that uh, the problem that you think you're solving. And so in order to produce something, to take advantage of the diversity of your team, um, you have to you have to get people to express that diversity, right? Like they have to have different ideas, they have to get them out, and you need to work them together. Otherwise, you're not creating emergent order. You're just you're just somebody's implementing uh, somebody else's idea, and and that's not the that's not the most productive way. Um, I think, especially when we're trying to solve complex problems, there might be some simple problems where that approach, at least in the short term, we could say we can, we can, we can map out everything and we'll just do step by step. Um, but complex problems, you really need to have a, a team. And if you're going to have a team, um, there's no advantage to a team if, if people aren't allowed to interact with, you know, have their ideas acted upon by somebody else, uh, because that's how, you, that's how you get the best ideas is, is through conversation and conflict um, you know, with respect, with respectful challenge, uh, whether that is, you know, sort of almost regardless of what the hierarchy is. Now, one of the, one of the principles in my book, I, I have like six different principles for being an emergent leader, but one of them is that we, we have to learn from our constraints and we have to choose them carefully. Um, being on a team is being constrained, right? You are choosing in some ways to be constrained by, the social relationships that you have with that team, um, uh, by you know the fact that you're going to have to reach some level of consensus about how how it moves forward, and sometimes those constraints can feel very stifling, right? But good teams know how to use those constraints uh, to benefit from those constraints uh, to to move the ball forward and uh, to to make progress as a team, and so. Um, Choosing the way that you choosing the the people on your team, but then also choosing the sort of the ways that you choose to interact with them, I think is a really important way to help shape the constraints on a team, and and over time to build habits as a team that are productive, uh, and and then be able to maximize the advantage of having you know lots of different minds working on a project rather than you know doing it solo. Joseph Schumpeter. Is it Schumpeter or Schumpeter? I think it's Schumpeter. 
Okay, we'll go with Shumpeter yeah, for this podcast, same. and it'll be another time, another podcast. It'll be Shumpeter, <laughs> just so we can cover all our bases. But he talks about creative destruction. And while you were talking about everyone in, a, in an office being all of the same mind and all saying, this is, you know, I, I went back to the idea of the ground is crumbling beneath our feet. And in that room, everybody's just like, like that meme, the dog in the burning room, just, this is fine. We're fine. Oh, everything's fine. <laughs> this is fine. Yep. <laughs> and that, that's the dangerous situation to be in when everyone is of the same mind. You, you cannot have that innovation with that with that kind of situation and that that requires an abundance of humility L- let me ask you this and i'm not sure if you covered it in the book but i'm sure you've got an answer for it what if you're dealing with a supervisor who doesn't have that humility who is very top down what would you suggest then yeah that's uh that's a challenging situation um uh and I think it's one that we encounter uh, constantly, even if it's not with our own direct direct supervisors. There's plenty of leaders in the world who uh, think that they control what's going on. And uh, I, I think the more I've studied history, the more the easier it is to realize that even some people that we might think of as dictators and we think of them as, as seeking to impose control, um, even they are extremely aware that they have to for they have to shape public perception in order to stay uh, in power. And in many ways, uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tie this back to the example and maybe this, maybe this is the way. In many ways, leaders can only control control rather than influence. Uh, leaders can only control people who essentially embrace the myth of that their leaders are in control. Um, and that's the situation in which they are the best, um, they are best able to exert full control is when they have convinced everybody in the, the nation or the company, or maybe just the team that they are in control and that their word is, um, uh, controlling in all situations. So I think if I was on a team like that, where the leader was very much, um, attempting command and control, I would want I would want to seek out with them what do they think of as the advantage of having a team. Um, again, I think uh, it depends on the personality of the person, but if they are dedicated to the mission of the organization, um, talking through how to best be part of a team with them requires not micromanaging, which is one of the big expressions of a, of a sort of control mentality. Uh, it, that it requires the inclusion of ideas that maybe didn't come from the leader. Uh, I think talking through some of those issues and connecting it to the, the mission of the organization, I think, might be one of the best ways to do it. Um, I also think that leading by example is it works uh, all directions, right? So if you're on a team like that and you have people who are under you, um, not passing down that mentality, not adopting the mentality of your manager and, and passing that down to your, uh, your the people who report to you and who, who are on your team, I think is really important, not just for the people who report to you, but I think it's also a, it shows a good example to your boss of 
what, um, how productive you can be in that situation rather than trying to take a command and control mentality. And so, um, again, a lot, a lot of things in the book come back to, I have a whole chapter on, you can make the world better by making yourself better. Uh, because I think in a world of complexity, um, where there's really difficult problems, it can be so hard to think about like, well, how do I tackle this thing? Um, and there's an, it's not easy, but there is a very concrete thing that we can all do, which is seeking to become better ourselves. That does have a real influence on the people around us uh, and the, the complex systems that we're a part of. And I think it's also quite actionable on our part. And so that's one of the reasons I include that in the book, uh, because in a world of complexity, it's nice to have something that in a world of complexity uh, and where so many of our co the complex systems are out of control, there is one that is much closer to a, in our control, which is you know how I think and how I choose to spend my time, um, and 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 pointing people to some some uh, something better to do in that space is a really concrete way um, to connect their desire to make the world better with you know an, an actionable step, and so. I think that applies in the workplace, but I think that applies uh, in our families and in our communities as well. You know, you're scratching my inner stoic there. I thought I was talking with Marcus Aurelius for a second. <laughs> there are only, you know, there's, it goes back to that idea that, you know, you can only control yourself. You can only control what, what you think. And I like the, the idea that if you've got someone who is very top down, you could burn yourself out trying to change them and you can set yourself up for failure trying to change them. Or you can recognize, I can't control them, I can only control myself. And so I will set the example not only for my direct reports, but for my, my supervisor as well. And, I mean, that's that's the best you can, you can do. You can recognize that you're not in control. And that is, you know, I thought every, every would-be tin-pot dictator thought they were in control until, you know, Julius Caesar thought they were in control until he looked Brutus in the eyes and was shocked that he was not and i'm currently going through um they changed the great courses to wondrium i don't know why not not important but i've been going through <laughs> capitalism versus socialism and today we talked about uh the the, the videos were on uh, mao and mao was for sure that he was in control of that economy i mean the five-year plan cultural revolutions it was all going to be perfect and then it consistently failed. And that's the type of, of top-down uh, leadership. That's what you can expect. This, this megalomania that one person or a group of elites can predict everything. And meanwhile, you've got the peasants out in the, in the fields who are figuring out how to make things work. And then I'm, I'm getting into China Chinese uh, history now. But you can see the difference between the top-down agricultural systems of the Soviet Union and China versus the more innovative emergent order of the free markets. This, this idea of emergent order not only impacts leadership, but also public policy. Did you speak to that in the book much? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a section on, there's a whole chapter on public policy implications of emergent leadership. And then I have a section uh, of case studies where I talk about two that are particularly relevant to my work in tech policy, which are uh, privacy and then content moderation. Um, but a couple of things in response to what you just said there, um, I talk about the Stoics a little bit in the book, not as much as um, 
not as much as I'd like to, and I'm still digging into to that to that world myself. I think they got some stuff really right. The point uh, yeah, about personal uh, responsibility, about the fact that you can really only control uh, what you think. I I started out the book actually with an example of how we don't really even control our bodies in many ways. At least not con- we don't consciously, right? I don't I don't know how I turned the pizza that I ate last night into muscle or you know right. cupcake into fat uh whatever it may be right like that's not a process that's under my control really no i i i had that same conversation with someone recently because i was saying i, I said <laughs> you only control what you think you don't even control your own body and this kid looked at me and says i control yeah. my body look i control my body and i said oh okay well make your liver stop and that was the end of that conversation okay you don't but you're right you or only what were the commands that went from your brain to yeah <laughs> to move your hand like i mean you know you can make your hand move but understanding how you did it is not something that that i mean that we know we certainly don't do it consciously um uh and then you know on the sort of the big public policy concerns the one thing that comes across throughout history and i'm a huge fan of um James C. Scott's book, Seen Like a State, he has a lot of examples of this, is that when top when leaders try to control a complex system, the way that they do so is by destroying a lot of the complexity in the system. And that has serious uh, detrimental effects, you know, cost millions of lives in the case of China. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, they can sort of have an illusion of control, even there. Even there, it's not. It's not very. It's pretty shaky because the the side effects are so bad. Um, but to the extent they can even get close to control, it's because they've destroyed a lot of the complexity that's in a system. Um, so in in the public policy, among the the biggest public policy implications is for government officials to, in the same way that the Stoics would advise actually look at what what effect can they have on the world. Uh, we have a lot of politicians and a lot of regulators who have these big, bold visions about how they're going to reshape society. And uh, those visions are so out of touch with what is actually possible as a uh, government official um, that they'd be well advised to be a lot more humble about what they can actually achieve uh, in the world. And it's, it's not to say that people shouldn't be ambitious about making the world a better place. I think we should be, but we also have to be realistic about what is possible to achieve um, through the use of government force. If you're a policymaker, Um, but also, you know, through, through my own influence and through my own, uh, advocacy to others. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, among the principles that I think are most important are to push decision-making down um, to the level at which the information is most relevant um, and being humble. I think that's that those two are, are really important. And then finally, I would say, even when you're interacting, anytime you interact with a complex system, even if you have the simplest intervention uh, on the government side or any other type of uh, intervention effect, you should, you should be ready for and expect unexpected consequences. Um, uh, Because that's, that's what, uh, that's what complex systems produce. Uh, I think there's a metaphor often that 
I actually see most often in the tech policy space with people who have come from engineering backgrounds uh, like myself. And the metaphor often is that society is like a, a machine, that it's like a maybe like a computer even. But society is not like that. Society is much more like an ecosystem. It's much more like a garden. Um, it is a, a place where we don't fully understand what the effects of our actions are going to be. Um, I, can, I can look at a car engine, which is complicated. It's not complex in the way that uh, we would technically say complex. It's complicated. Um, because I can, I can take it all apart, I can understand what each part does, and I can put it back together and understand how that part contributes to the whole. Complex systems are not like that. Uh, if you take them apart, and even if you understand all the details of the little pieces, which often is quite hard to do, um, uh, you still don't understand everything about the complex system. Because when you put those pieces together, there is something that comes out of their interaction that produces something new that's not expected from understanding uh, the elements themselves. A great example of this is an anthill. Even if you understood everything about an individual ant, you could not predict the behavior of an anthill because the behavior of an anthill comes from the interactions between the ants um, and the, the paths that they do. And so if you take certain types of ants you get totally different systems if you have one ant or if you have a hundred ant or you, if you have a million ants. million ants is a totally different system than a hundred ant system. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's one of the amazing things about um, complex systems. Uh, but it also, the lesson for policymakers is expect the unexpected, even if you're trying to do the simplest possible thing. It reminds me that there are so many different applications of this philosophy. And I was thinking about all the different priority initiatives that the Stand Together community has. And I was thinking about the top-down, one-size-fits-all ideas in, in education. And I keep thinking about uh, the video that, that just came out with Todd Rose. And they talk about um, Borlison. I, think, I, can't, I, th I hope I'm getting more Borland, uh, who invented fertilizer. And the question was, yeah. How, yeah. how many how many of them have we lost because of the top down, one size fits all education? Whereas if you you allow this emergent order, and we've kind of seen that over the past year, as schools have shut down, parents have said, okay, well we've got to come up with something different, and we've seen pockets of innovation where that that have emerged and. Yeah, it, it's exciting to watch this actually yeah. happen, and, and it, it saddens me when you see that top-down control. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of uh, Todd's, and I'm, I'm working my way through uh, Dark Horse now. Um, I wish I had read it before I wrote the book, but that's the way, actually, once you read a book, you'll feel that way about every book that you read. I mean, almost every book. You'll be like, yeah. oh, man, I could have included something here. Uh, uh, but... Um, yeah, education is one of those uh, areas in which the mental model for training was essentially a machine, right? Like we're going to put in raw humans and we're going to get out at the other end, productive members of society. They're going to plug into various places. And that mentality, um, that's not an emergent order one. That is a mentality that is, is uh, mechanical and it treats humans as if they're cogs um, rather than uh, – the complex machines that they are. 
Um, and so I really love uh, Todd's message to say that we need to individualize education. And, uh, and I think that that's uh, uh, such a critical, you know, I, I was homeschooled myself. And so, uh, well, from first grade until I went to college. And so, uh, so I don't know, I, you know, I don't have a lot of practical experience with the traditional schooling system, but every time I think about it, I'm like, my experience would have been so different from what I had. Uh, if I had, if I just had this regimented, like almost factory, like, right. I mean, I think actually it might be in dark horse. I can't remember where, but, uh, I was reading that some of the early like school alarms that we had that, you know, would be like, Oh, it's, you're done with this class. You need to go to the next one. We're literally manufactured by the same people who made those for factories, right? Like mm-hmm. the idea that like, Oh, we're going to do school now. Um, you know, we're going to do math now. And then in an hour, like you're going to move on to the next task. Like even some of that is so it's this factory mentality. That's this sort of, we're going to move from one thing to the next, uh, no matter what we're interested in or what we're curious in or what we're capable of or what we're, uh, what we want to explore. Uh, we're just going to march everybody together in these, you know, groups of kids through the school day. Uh, and at the end, you know, maybe some of them will turn out to be productive and, you know, maybe the rest of them will, will grade them like failures. And then, then they'll have to go on and be the next Todd Rose who had to drop out of uh, the regular system and find his own path. So Yeah, yeah. It was Norman yeah. Borlaug. I don't know why I couldn't remember that name. Norman uh, Borlaug, right. Yeah, yeah. The, the book that I, I read that, well, I, I think I read that in was um, uh, uh, the Sandifer book uh, around the Acton Academies uh, and, and his program for, um, for schooling. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, A Room to Grow or something like that. Um, uh, great book. So your book oh, is you know, getting I, out. You know what? Of, I just ahead. remembered. What, yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you mentioned China and uh, their command and control. I think it's really interesting that you're, you're reading that. I did do an uh, uh, article on the recent China um, ban on gaming that they had uh, for kids who are under 18, I think, they limit them to three hours on the weekends and you have to actually sign in through facial recognition in order to do it. But it's part of China's like, and I, I, I know some parents who would be like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Um, but, but, but it's actually a trend in China um, across all of their systems that involve essentially decentralized authorities. Right. So like uh, a lot of internet technologies they have recently cracked down on because they undermine the control of the centralized government. And my article argues that that's, first of all, we, we and, and it's funny how many of the ideas that they're adopting are sort of very similar to what tech skeptics in the U.S. are saying that we should do. Um, and, I, I, and I argue in that we should double down on the U.S. is like we're never going to out China China, right? Like even if even if you think oh like centralizing control of some of this is a good idea we're never going to be able to do it to the level that china does and and from my perspective that's to our that's a great saving grace what we should double down is down on is our decentralized emergent order processes where the us is quite good at that uh, culturally we are we are skeptical of centralized control um and and hopefully we can keep that skepticism while embracing the the responsibility that each of us have uh, to tackle the problems that are in our own lives and in our communities. And I think that um, 
that's the path forward for the U.S. in tech policy, but in many other areas as well. I think like you were talking about in the education space, um, even in the environmental space, I think there's a lot of opportunities to take decentralized approaches that are complex enough that match the complexity of the problems that we have uh, and, and therefore be able to make some progress on them. Thanks again to Neil Chilson for taking the time to talk with us about his book, Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. If you have any questions about the book or any questions about a previous podcast you may have listened to, please send them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. And if you haven't taken the time to leave a review for the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you know you wouldn't mind doing that right now. If not now, then when, right? As good a time as any. I'm Dwayne Lester. This has been Top Priority. And until next time, take care and we'll see you then.